Morning, EVC family. Glad to see you guys here this morning. I, uh, maybe some of y'all are in the back kind of squinting and say, thinking, wow, Bart kind of looks a little different today. Well, I'm not Bart. I'm Trey. Some, of, some people get us a little confused out in the community. Evidently, you got to be bald and have some glasses to be a church planner around here. So, like I said, I'm Trey. I'm the pastor of Renovate Church, and I want to thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart for your, for your prayers, for your support, and I love the partnership to be able to partner with like-minded, kingdom-minded folks like yourselves that, that we can extend God's love to the community and expand God's kingdom and His love here in Saginaw. So I applaud you. Uh, Renovate Church applauds you. And so we just want to thank you. And so we... If you guys would like to, to support us some more, here's just a couple of ways. So tonight we're having an event at Willow Creek Park called Freedom Fest. Starts at 5.30. Simply just have some simple hot dogs and I'll have some games and some bounce houses for kids. You're welcome to come out and join us. So I invite you guys to that. Um, also, if you'd like to follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram and, and share our events. Help us spread the word uh, about about us, and we meet at Encore School of Dance behind Aldi on Sundays at 10.30. So you can, guys can help us with that as well. So it's awesome being here with you guys today. Such a privilege. I usually end up preaching maybe around 20 or 25 minutes. And so I want to make sure that you guys feel real comfortable, that I'm meeting your expectations. I want to put your heart at ease and just let you know I'm going to be taking the full 45 minutes. (laughs) So because of that, however, I needed to supersize my coffee this morning. So this was my coffee. And so if I start dancing on the stage a little while, in in a little bit, it's not because the Holy Spirit's moving, it's because the coffee's moving. Because you only borrow coffee, right? But seriously, uh, so I, I want us to take a look at this account in John chapter 11. It's this account about a life or death kind of type situations. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can start turning there. John chapter 11. Sometimes it's really helpful for us to kind of get a overview, maybe a 5,000 kind of foot view and get some context of scripture that we read. And I think what's helpful in this case, when you look at the book of John, which I love the book of John, um, he is a, a close friend, a close follower of Jesus. And he is an eyewitness to everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said. And so his purposes throughout John is threefold. One is to show that God, that Jesus was God and he was the son of God, uh, that he was who he said he was. But also, number two, to show God's desire for man to have life. And thirdly, to show God's power to be able to give that life. And so the climax of the entire book happens in uh, chapter 20, verse 31. And it says, all these things are written so that by believing in him, believing in Jesus, you may have life in him. And I find it real interesting that out of the four gospels, that John is the only one that includes this account. And I think it fits really well because it illustrates these truths, the purposes of John's book, real well for us. And so 
I don't have time to give you like the, the, the whole story. So I, since we're going to hit midstream, I just want to set it up for you real quick, just in case you've never heard this before. So we've got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So these are brothers and sisters. They're close friends of Jesus. The problem is that Lazarus is on his deathbed. He's really, really sick, and he's about to die. And so Mary and Martha thinking, okay, well, Jesus, we know that he can heal. So, hey, let's go get Jesus. And so they send a messenger. Uh, Jesus was, was in another town, another area. So they sent a messenger to go get Jesus and tell him about what's going on. And so what's interesting here is that Jesus decides he, he doesn't leave immediately upon hearing the news. And he delays his arrival. I'll explain in just a second. So let's jump in in verse 17. It says, When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. So Jesus delayed his arrival because Jews in that day at this time believed that the soul could hover around the body for up to three days and re-enter during that time frame. And so Jesus delayed his arrival on the fourth day because he wanted everybody to realize beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was Jesus, it was himself that was the one that was raising Lazarus from the dead. He wanted to get credit for it. And so verse 20, so when Martha got word <clears throat> that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. So they had lots of guests because of Lazarus' death. So Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, our brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, here's the deal. So Martha's response was based in truth, but not the whole truth. It's, it's kind of like, her response is kind of like when, when a loved one dies and we kind of comfort ourselves. Like, okay, so one of these days I will see them, you know, in heaven type thing, type response. And, and I want us to notice that Jesus doesn't say, doesn't say hey, I understand the secrets of or I claim to have resurrection and life. But he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the author of life. This is what I'm known for. This is what I, what I do. And I'm here before you to show you that this life is not just some sort of future reality for you to look forward to, for you to experience. But this life that I have to offer is a present reality. It is a life here, now, here on this earth. Yes, there's life after death, but there's also life now for those who believe in Jesus. And then he goes on and says, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me will believe, believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And so Jesus challenges Martha not on an intellectual level, but on a faith level. He says, do you believe? And so Martha responds, yes, Lord. I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. So Martha goes to get Mary. They switch places. And so when Mary arrives and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet. Now, I, I want you guys to kind of highlight, just, just kind of put a, a mental kind of pin at that point right there, because I'm going to come back to this in just a second. Notice that Martha didn't, she didn't, fall at Jesus' feet or anything. But here we got Mary falling at Jesus' feet. 
says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Then Jesus wept. I love the compassion and the love and care and concern for Jesus. He grieved along with his friends. Lazarus was a friend too. But not only was he grieving, he was sad, he cried, but he was also angry and troubled. And so the Greek word actually suggests, expresses it almost like a, a, a snort of a horse, like, like a snort of indignation, this indignation about the, the destruction and the power of death. And of course, we know that, that the rest of the story and Jesus conquers the dominating power of death was on the cross and his resurrection uh, three days later. In verse, let's get back on track here. Verse 38, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. But Martha replied, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. In King James Version, it actually says, Lord, he stinketh. I think it's funny. All right, so then Jesus, Jesus responded, well, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? And so then they rolled the stone aside, and Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet are bound in grave clothes. He's doing the resurrection shuffle. <laughs> and his face was wrapped in headcloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. Now, Notice that Jesus calls him out by name. This is a very important detail. Because imagine for a moment that. So they're at this, this grave. They're at this cemetery. They're at this tomb. He's a resurrection in life. He can heal people. He can raise the dead. What if he just said, come out? All of a sudden it'd be like this. Yeah, that's how powerful Jesus is, right? But what if, what if, just for a moment, just think, what if Lazarus didn't want to come out? What if he yelled back to Jesus from the tomb and said, no, thank you. I'm good. It's quiet in here. No one's bothering me in here. If I come out, people expect me to be different. And isn't that the challenge that we face when Jesus calls us out of the tomb, of the grave, by name? It'd be a little scary. And why was Lazarus in grave clothes? Because he was in a grave. Dead men need dead men clothes. Alive people need a whole different set of wardrobe. But really, obviously, the grave clothes represent something. So what is that exactly? And so there's this great church planner in the New Testament called Paul. It's a lot more, more smarter than I am. And he came up with actually a pretty good list. And so if you're taking notes, note this passage. I'm not going to go through it all in depth. I'm just going to summarize and hit some, some highlights here. But Colossians 3, chap, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ... 
basically Paul's saying, okay, so remember, you came out of the grave. You came out of the tomb. You accepted this new life in Jesus that Jesus has to offer. He says, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of, of earth. For you died to this life. There's another translation that says, you should have as little desire for this world as a dead person does. That's fantastic. And so then in verse 5, he says, so put to death. So put to death, not just once, not just five times, not 50, not 500, not 5,000, not 5 million, but put to death again and again and again, continually putting to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. And so then he gives us this, this great kind of example. Okay, so what exactly might be some examples of these grave clothes? These stinky, nasty grave clothes. What are they? And so he says, okay, so take off sexual immorality. It's basically the wrong kind of sex or the wrong timing of sex. For example, sex before marriage or self-centered instincts. Then he goes and lists impurity, lust, or sinful passions, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, or hate, slander, dirty language, and lying. You know, I love that he put impurity in there because many of us can maybe look at that list and go, I don't really have a problem with that one. We can cross that one off the list. Okay, I don't have a problem with that one. I don't have a problem with that one. But that impurity one is a big old kind of catch-all because how often are we, do we at least have impure motives or maybe impure thoughts from time to time, Right? Okay, so that's the clothes we need to take off. Those are the grave clothes. So what about the new clothes? What do we need? Paul doesn't want us to be naked. He says, okay, so what are you going to clothe, clothe yourself with? And he says, okay, here's some examples. Tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, making allowance for each other's faults, forgiving, be loving, be thankful. All right, so if you could name one person who embodies this entire list, who would it be? Yeah, give me the Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Yeah, exactly, Jesus. So what Paul's really saying here is just, just put on Jesus. These are all characteristics of Jesus. Maybe this isn't an exhaustive list, but even if it was, it's, man, that's a tall order. These are some hard things to kind of live up to and to do all the time. But luckily for those of us who believe in Jesus, the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that resides in you. And the same power that can begin to do this life transformation from the inside and work itself out. It's a renovation of our heart, which, by the way, is how we got our name, Renovate Church. We've all placed ourselves as a renovation project and given ourselves our heart over to Jesus so that he can renovate it, that he can transform it, that he can put the pieces back together. And this list right here is just a list of evidence of Jesus at work in us. So let me make just a few observations about our clothing. So our clothes will match your pursuit. Your clothes will match your pursuit. Think about it. Are you going to, if you're at a job interview, are you going to be wearing a stained, wrinkly t-shirt and shorts? No. 
your clothes are going to match your pursuit. So what are you chasing after? Your clothes are going to match that. Secondly, your clothes match your environment. If I'm working on a car, I'm going to be putting some clothes on that are on mine getting greasy and dirty and stinky. But if I'm going to be officiating a wedding, I'm going to be wearing a suit, right? So clothes match your environment. If you don't like your clothes that you're wearing right now, maybe you need to change your environment. Maybe you're in the wrong environment right now. Thirdly, your clothes match your heart. Your clothes reflect a heart change, a change in who's in control and who has a deed to the home of your heart. And even though we're alive and living in Christ, sometimes we pick up those dirty, stinky kind of grave clothes and we just put it back on and it stinks. It's ugly. No one wants to be around it. And it reminds me of this verse in Proverbs that says, dogs return to eat their vomit just as fools repeat their foolishness. And so Jesus is saying, you don't need to eat that vomit. That's not the only option. We've got a feast over here for you. We've got steak and we've got tenderloin. We've got ribs with no sauce. Did y'all see Jamie's post on Facebook about that? He'd be proud that I made that into the sermon. Um, (laughs) And so Christ is doing the same thing with our clothes. It's like, you don't need those stinky clothes anymore. They don't do. They, they, They don't fit you anymore. You're alive. So here's some nice, clean laundry to put on. You smell a whole lot better and you look better too. And so as we answer the call to step out of the grave, there's this life change, life transformation that, that happens that Jesus does this disruptive work kind of in us. And to say that Jesus is disruptive is an understatement. And so when people encounter Jesus in the New Testament, you, you find some very opposite reactions. You find people who, who just resist him and want to kill him. And then you've got people that love him and want to follow him, want to worship him. And so what I find interesting is you continue reading in John, which we hear in a little bit, um, you, you see these immediately after Jesus raised from last, you see these two opposite um, reactions to Jesus. So let's look at John eleven forty five. It says, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. When the leading Pharisees, sorry, the leading priests and the Pharisees called the high council together, which is always ends in not so good things. Uh, what are we going to do? They always, they, they asked each other. The, this man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will, be, will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Now, I think it's interesting. Notice that they recognize that Jesus could perform miracles, but didn't understand because they didn't believe. But also notice that fear is driving their actions. And whenever, here's the thing about fear, is that fear paralyzes us and keeps us from God's mission and God's purpose. And when we're confronted with fear, we either give in to the fear 
or we choose faith. It's a choice. It's either fear or faith. And so they feared because they did not have faith. And so in verse 49, so Caiaphas, which is a, he's a mean dude. He's a rude dude. He is a bully. Doesn't come across in this text, but he was this high priest at the time. And he says, you don't know what you're talking about, you idiots. I added that in, obviously. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation to be destroyed. Now, look at this. What's kind of fascinating to me is like, why would God speak to this guy? But here's the thing. is like God spoke to the high priest. And what's even just mind-blowing also is that the high priest got it right. He got the voice. He received the voice of God and he heard correctly. Now, he didn't interpret it correctly because his heart was clouded. His heart was clouded from unbelief and misplaced expectations. So, verse 51, he did not say this on his own as high priest at that time. He was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. The prophecy was right, but the application was wrong. 52, and not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. So from that time on, here we go, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. All right, so we got this group of people who are rejecting Jesus and want to kill him. So now as we keep on reading in John, now that we get to John chapter 12, verse 1, I know we're covering lots of territory here in Scripture. You guys with me? Awesome. Okay, so six days before the Passover celebration began, basically um, John's giving us a time marker telling us that this is the last week before the death and burial of Jesus. So Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor, celebrating what Jesus did with Lazarus. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wage. It should have been sold, and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. And when all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of, of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. So I, I love this. I think this is hilarious that these guys want to kill Lazarus. And I can imagine, like, Lazarus in this, like, smug confidence say, bring it on, boys. I got nothing to lose here. Jesus already raised me from the dead once before. He'll do it again. And even if he doesn't, I'm going to be in heaven. It's a win-win situation. Bring it on. And as far as Mary's reaction, man, it's, it's kind of absurd. It's kind of not quite practical. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And if I'm honest with myself, and maybe you're honest with yourself, aren't you kind of like Judas a little bit? Okay, maybe we aren't thieves. 
But I can understand his, his comment about this, this just doesn't make sense. It's not very practical. Because if you look at this jar of perfume and it's worth a year's salary, let's just say, okay, so the average household income is around like 80000 okay? So let's just say that this jar of perfume is 80000 that represents $80,000. And we're just going to pour that out? Really? I mean, I'm a poor church planner. We don't have much money as a church. You give me eighty grand. I, there's all kinds of things I can think of to do with that money. And so to me, it's like, wow, that just doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? Just pour that out on Jesus' feet. But that's the beauty of it. Isn't that the point? When you're totally smitten with someone, you'll do anything. And Mary is totally smitten with Jesus. And so what do you give someone who saves you and gives you eternal life? You give them your heart. You give them your devotion. You surrender everything to them. Surrendered life of worship. And so as we look at Mary's gift to Jesus, it's remarkable in three ways. One is humble. She was, this gift was remarkably humble. So it was common when guests would come to your house that since they wore sandals, uh, the feet were very dirty oftentimes, and so there would be a servant or, or a slave that would wash guests' feet. It was a very lowly, very menial kind of task. And then a dab of oil or a dab of perfume was, would be applied to the guest's forehead. And so Mary's ointment, again, a year's worth a year's salary, she thought it's not even worth his head. It's just worth, not, barely even worth the lowest part of his body, his feet. And then Mary's gift was also remarkably extreme. It was almost as if Mary was saying, Jesus was her security, not money. Jesus was her security, not a savings account. Jesus is our security, not a 401k or retirement plan. And, she, and I mean, wow, what, can, we, can we come to Jesus? Or how often do we come to Jesus with that kind of faith? I mean, she gave up her income for an entire year. And some of us have trouble just giving up a tenth of our income once a month. Here's the deal. You will sacrifice anything to pursue that which is most important to you. Just let that sink in just for a moment. You'll sacrifice anything to pursue that which is most important to you. You show me that which and who you sacrifice for, and I'll show you what's most important to you. Mary's gift was also remarkably undignified. She let her hair down. That was, a, that was a no-no. As a Jewish woman, you did not do that in public. Uh, only prostitutes did that. And although Mary did not sell herself out for sex, she, sold, she was totally sold out to Jesus. So. Totally sold out for Jesus. Didn't care what people thought about her. Couldn't we stand to be a little bit more like Mary in our devotion to Christ? And as we look at Mary, we see, it's a study of devotion. We see her at the feet of Jesus at three different times. 
The first one's in, in Luke 10, 39. We find Mary seated at Jesus' feet and learning from him. This is, this is when Mary and Martha were hosting a dinner for him in his honor. And if you're familiar with the story, Martha's all busy in the kitchen preparing the meal and, and cleaning up and preparing for things and giving Mary the stink eye because she's not helping. Because all Mary's doing is just sitting at the feet of Jesus and just hanging on every word that he says and just soaking it all in. And then, then Luke 11, sorry, John eleven thirty two, 32, that we read a little while ago. Mary fell at his feet when he arrived at Bethany for the first time and surrendered. Then we got John 12, 3. Mary anointed Jesus' feet and honored Jesus. There's a great theologian, Charles Spurgeon, that says, you must sit at his feet or you'll never anoint them. He must pour his divine teaching into you or you will never pour out a precious ointment upon him. And so the smell of that oil just filled the entire room, filled the entire house. And that's the cool thing about our worship. It affects others. And I'm not talking about worship of what happens just on Sunday mornings when we're singing praises and singing songs to God. Worship is not just that. It's about a life of obedience uh, to him. It's a life about surrendering to his lordship. Our devoted worship is a sweet fragrance that God uses to attract others to him. Paul tells us, reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians. He says, now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. So our worship leads to attracting others to Jesus. Loving God leads to leading others to love God. Hey, we've, we all have a smell. We all have a smell. Do you stink or do you smell good? Do you have a sweet fragrance? Are you attracting others to Christ? Are you, do you have a sweet smell that people want to be around? So, what do you do with Jesus? All right, we see these two opposite reactions. Have a group of people that want to kill him. You've got Mary that wants to worship him. It's a matter of life and death. Which do you choose? So Jesus' question to Martha is the same one that he's asking us. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Put your name in the blank. Make it personal. If you answer yes, then you can step out of your tomb because, guess what? A tomb's only for the dead. And Jesus has a great plan for you, a great purpose, a great design. He's calling you out by name because that, that plan and that design, that purpose, that mission is specific to you. And he's calling you out of that grave. And you can't do that from inside a tomb. And so, what do you do with Jesus? What's our response? Well, one is we can take a step out of that grave into new life. If you happen to sense God talking to you right now, sensing God kind of calling you out of the grave to follow him and make a decision to do that today, there are some cards in front of you and connection cards. It's a place for you to check that off. 
And you can drop that off at Guest Central, and there are some pastors here that will follow up with you on, and talk to you more about that. But for those of you who have already decided to follow Jesus and answer the call to come out of the grave, you've got, you still might be wearing some grave clothes. You might be stinking things up. And Jesus is asking, saying, you know, that doesn't fit really well anymore. You need to get rid of that. And so another thing we can do is drop our grave clothes and clothe ourselves with Christ. We need to do this exchange with Jesus. Jesus got this nice, fresh, clean laundry. And when you put it on, it reflects him. It reflects us as children of God and recipients of new life. Paul tells us in Romans, so clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So what does it mean to clothe yourself with Christ? It, it just means to display outwardly that which is going on inwardly. And thirdly, what do we do with Jesus? We can be more like Mary. We can live a completely devoted and surrendered life to Jesus, totally being sold out for him. I know it can be hard. What's keeping you from following Jesus with your whole heart? It can be hard because he doesn't make sense sometimes. He doesn't always fit our mold. He doesn't always fit our expectations, which is why the religious leaders back in, in the New Testament had such a hard time with him. He doesn't fit our schedules. He doesn't fit our calendars. We ask for things, and he, he never acts soon enough. We ask for things, he acts way too soon sometimes. <laughs> and so, what do you do when things aren't making sense? Do we resist? Do we withdraw? Do we do it our own way? Or do we get close? Do we pursue? Do we surrender? Do we trust? I can't, I can't promise you that his way is going to be easier. In fact, it's kind of hard. It really hurts to die to yourself, doesn't it? It really hurts. And that's hard to do sometimes. So I can't promise that your life's going to be easier. But I can promise that it's going to be better. It's always going to be better in Jesus' way. So, if you're completely sold out for Jesus, if you've got some grave clothes that you're still hanging on to, if you decide to take a step out of that grave, what does that exactly look like for you? What does that look like? As you experience not only eternal life, but also a better life here on this earth, what does that look like? And so I encourage you guys to, as you have lunch with friends or families or your spouse did you guys talk about that what does that look like and discuss that over lunch let's pray Jesus we just thank you that, that you offer life that you are life we have to admit that there's tons of brokenness and death around us broken relationships and broken dreams broken bodies broken hearts we thank you that you are the one who can perform miracles. You're the one that can heal our brokenness. And you created us so that you are the one that can put us back together. 
You are the one that can give hope and comfort. You're the one that can make a dead man come alive, a dead heart beat again. And you're calling us out of the grave to experience life and purpose and meaning in all that we do. And you've got this great plan for us, a better plan for us, a new life for us. And so, Lord, forgive us as we get lazy in our devotion to you. So many distractions. We're devoted to so many other things, and they may be good things, but they're not things of you. Forgive us that we don't sacrifice enough, and you you gave all of you, and we thank you for that, but why should we hold anything back? Even now this morning, God, we just pour out our hearts like Mary poured out oil and humility, and may it be extreme, not holding anything back. Let it be unhindered and undignified. We love you and we want to show you. And so we do so by pouring out our heart in praise and a life of obedience and surrender and in trust. God, you are faithful, you are true. We love you, God, for you're a good, good, good God.